Welcome back for episode four of No Truths Barred, the Thinking Man's podcast. And this podcast, uh, as said previously, it's a way to engage in deep discourse. So I'm thinking recently, why is it we always feel the need to try to regulate the sexual proclivity of women? And I'm not trying to be like one of these male feminists or down men or constantly talk about, you know, all of these uh, benign qualities in women and all of these malevolent qualities in men, but rather I'm trying to get you to think. And, you know, as society becomes more liberated, though we still have systemic racism, though we still have wealth uh, uh, inequality, though we still have police brutality, though there's still nefarious foreign policy taking place all across the globe, we have a lieu of things that are kind of cascading humanity on to a point of no return. But within this, we're starting to have more and more dialogue about exactly what is sexual freedom. And so many times when we, when we have this, you know, we make this false dichotomy, if you will, of man and woman. And we'll say, well, if a woman sleeps with a lot of men, she's a hoe. And then if a man sleeps with a lot of women, he's a player. He's giving props. He's giving kudos. Uh, it, the whole premise of marriage is to find you a virginal wife or as close to a virginal wife as possible. And I look at this being 2019 and, you know, so many other things we have discourse on. So, you know, we have discourse on same sex marriage or even the concept of marriage, if you will. But even when it comes to women, we still have this antiquated worldview that I feel is predicated upon puritanical principles, which come from uh, Christianized principles that made made its way through Western Europe, which comes from Rome, which, you know, uh, comes from uh, Greece, if you will, and not necessarily in the way that religion matriculated because if you look at the Roman Empire with the advent of Christianity within the Roman Empire, it was fighting previous uh, so-called pagan uh, deities and religions that, that existed. So like Mars and Jupiter and uh, Europa and these particular different deities um, were kind of like uh, in conflict. So I'm not talking necessarily straight down to a... Uh, uh, a linear religious perspective, but if you go to the Hellenists or Greece, Rome, uh, Western Europe, and, and so on, you start to see uh, the role of women as being secondary. And more so than that, you see the sexuality of women being contained. And if I could take it back, you know, prior to uh, Rome and prior to the Hellenistic epoch, uh, I think a lot of our principles are predicated on Judeo-Christian values. And if you go back and like I mentioned in my previous, I think the first podcast, when you look at some of these desert communities, and so when I say desert communities, I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I don't mean this as a diss to any type, anyone's uh, theological predilections, if you will. But what I am saying is that you have to examine honor cults and honor cultures and desert cultures. You know, these pre-Islamic Arabian groups, these are groups that would have uh, inhabited um, ancient Palestine, if you will. And you have to look at the dynamic of where women were placed and how women were treated. Now, granted, you did have women that can that were able to indulge in trade and commerce, but 
within that, uh, because when you look at these societies and these more settled cultures and when you have property and who property goes to, there's more of an impetus to try to restrict and regulate uh, the sexual proclivity, if you will, of women. Um, and even in, the, in some of the, the, the scriptures of biblical texts, you know, you start to see that. And before I go on, I want to name this episode, No More Sex Matters. And I admit that I mean that as a double entendre. So no is actually going to be spelled in, I mean, excuse me, K-N-O-W, more sex matters. And I'm not just doing this particular episode to talk about, uh, you know, orgasms and whatnot, but I want us to really be able to think about why we view and perceive things the way that we do. And what I like to do is I'm a, definitely a student of history. And so I don't want to bog you down with a, 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 a sundry of facts and dates. Um, more so, I want to put things out there and I want to encourage you to go and do your own research on some of these topics that I'm talking about. And so I think one of the reasons why we have this aversion towards the sexuality of women goes back to a biblical standpoint. So, for example, you know, you look at uh, the book of Leviticus, um, which is the, the the book of laws in the uh, in the Torah, in the within the first five books of the Old Testament, and you can kind of see this uh, particular trait or particular custom sorry, if you will, amongst people like the Rastafarians now, um, some kind of like more obscure groups of the Beta uh, Yisrael or the House of Israel. You know, you have different groups that don't subscribe to the main branches of uh, or the current main branches of Judaism, if you will, um, because actually the oldest form of Judaism you can find amongst the uh, uh, the Felicia of Ethiopia. Now, that's not the name that they call themselves. They call themselves the Bitta uh, Israel. That was the name that was given to them by a king um, at the time. Uh, and this is go this goes back to around, I believe, the second or third century AD. But anyway, regardless of that, in the book of Leviticus, you when women menstruate, you're supposed to avoid them. You're not supposed to come near them. And I believe they're not allowed in the temple. Uh, in the, in, if you go into the new Testament and Corinthians, you know, apparently according to the apostle Paul, um, women are supposed to ask a man's permission before they're able to speak in church. So you have these things. One thing that really caught my eye is that I've done my research, uh, somewhat on these old Testament, uh, cultures or these, uh, proto Canaanite or proto-Israel uh, cultures, if you will, and you see a name pop up. So in that particular pantheon, one of the deities is El, and El, um, spell E-L, uh, is the most high deity. So, you know, in the Bible, you have like El Shaddai and El this, or if you notice um, names in the Bible that have El, you know, as a, as a suffix, if you will, I believe that's right. 
uh, references God. So, for example, like uh, Mikael or Mike, Mike L, Michael is uh, he who is like God or one who is like God. I believe that's the translation of the name. And when you study L, uh, L over time kind of becomes synonymous with Yahweh. And amongst the Canaanites, uh, Yahweh had a consort by the name of Asherah. And Asherah was the female counterpart uh, to Yahweh. And in certain parts of the Old Testament, I think in the book of Judges and a few other books, and you can go and research this on your own because it's, it's been a while since I've, you know, known it kind of backward and forward. But there were called these things called beams or poles or totems of Ashtaroth. And people would even go and lay alms and uh, pray and prostrate uh, before some of these poles. The reason why I brought up Yahweh and the female consort is because gradually as time goes on, you start to see the sexuality and the need for the masculine and feminine principle amongst these early Israelite communities fade into just uh, worshiping to Yahweh. And another fact about early Israel is that they actually were not monotheistic. They were henotheist. And henotheists are people that know and recognize that there are other gods, but they decide to enter into a covenant with one particular God. So just, just like a, a fun fact. Um, so, you know, you start to see that there, you know, and even, you know, when you look at the book of Genesis and I, and I want to, I also, I want to inculcate and I want to put the caveat out there is that I believe in God. Um, I'm not trying to be you know, anti-Christian or anti-Islamic or anything of the this, this, this sorts. But I do believe that I have a brain and I think that we see these, uh, we see kind of these indiscrepancies or certain things that are real conspicuous. And I think we should have these discussions about how exactly do these things come to be about. And so I think even furthermore, you know, and I'm talking about the sexuality of women, but I want you to follow me because I want to jump around and I want to talk briefly, talk about different groups uh, and how the woman may have been affected or impacted. So when you look at the book of Genesis or in Hebrew, it's called the Barashit. And I'll, I'll kind of want to flex on y'all, you know, sure. I know a little bit of a little bit of Hebrew, a little bit of something like that. Uh, when you go back and you look at Genesis, you look at Adam. And then uh, write this stuff down. I don't know why I feel like doing this tonight. But you look at Adam and uh, in Hebrew, uh, it's Aish. That's Adam. And Eve is Isha. Isha. And because she was taken out of the rib or the life of the the, 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 the rib or the, the, the life, if you will, of Adam to be formed. And it's not just this is not just a. Um, a common uh, thing amongst the, the proto-Canaanite community, but you see it in Sumer, you see it in the creation tales of the Epic of Gilgamesh as well. So this was kind of a, 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 a not too much of an autonomous story, if you will, um, that's just germane to the Israelites. Uh, so with that being said, you look at Eve and Eve due to the serpent 
and the influence of the serpent, Eve takes a bite of this apple. And thus, Eve, a woman, is the catalyst of the downfall of mankind. There are a lot of people, a lot of adults right now to this day. That when we see a lot of the enmity between men and women or different groups, men and women, I keep saying men and women, sorry, apologize listeners, but amongst different groups, when we see this, many people say, man, it's because Eve bit that apple. How powerful is it that a story or an account of something thousands of years ago, whether you believe it's factual or not, is beyond the point. But the fact that can still govern the way in which we view women and the way in which we view the the choices and the logic that women have, people say, oh, women are automatically emotional. They don't have logic. They don't use logic in their decision-making. We're emotional creatures in general. If we didn't have, if we, if men weren't emotional, we wouldn't be here as a species. Emotion is why you fall in love. Emotion is why you care for children. And once again, these are predicated upon various uh, chemicals in your body, you know, such as serotonin, norepinephrine, etc., that, you know, are bonding chemicals and bonding agents, oxytocin, you know, all of these things that our bodies release for us to bond with lovers and children. But beyond that, um, uh, which those things are intangibles, but the great intangible is that you develop these feelings to care. So uh, we all are emotional. Um, but when you look at the Adam and Eve story, it carries so many implications that really we still we still suffer from, you know, and, and I just kind of, I just kind of think that one of the things we have to do is that we have to really question, um, and it may be uncomfortable, but we have to question these things that we, we've been told as truths, you know, we have to question these things that we've been told is the absolute way in which men and women are to interact. Um, another interesting thing to, to look at, and this, once again, this ties back into sexuality and regulating the sexuality of women, um, is that, uh, in near, in, uh, other Near Eastern myths or mythos, if you will, is a being or an entity by the name of Lilith. And Lilith was according to like, uh, more non-canonical, uh, biblical sources, Lilith was apparently the first wife of wife of Adam, but unlike Eve, Lilith was made of the ground um, or the the earth, just like Adam was. And the the, the rift or the conflict, if you will, um, came between Adam and Eve when they had sex because she didn't want to submit to Adam and she questioned Adam's authority. And uh, according to the story, I believe Adam went and talked to God and I believe Lilith was banished into the deserts and, you know, all of these evil uh, or for lack of better words, 
more negative connotations with Lilith begin to uh, arise, according to the story. Um, but Lilith, you know, you see Lilith uh, in Babylonian mythos as well. And Lilith is often depicted as a winged spirit that preys upon pregnant women and infants. Um, and I and I also believe that Lilith is is like the 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 demon or the or or the the demon of like open and wide spaces and deserts and these sorts of environments as well. Um, and so I brought up that that particular point and that particular story because it ties into I think on a visceral level. And I'm not going to say visceral because these things were learned. Because if you look at human beings and hunter-gatherer societies, a lot of human beings are far more egalitarian in sexual practices. Um, this really, our way of doing things, best of my research, really, it, it comes about um, with the advent of agriculture. But I point that story out because it ties into the rift was because one human being if you take away the whole man and woman thing, one human being did not want to submit to another human being. You have to think about that for a while. What type of implications does that carry? Now, mind you, the reason why I'm pointing out the religious aspect is because you're talking about what people believe to be the divine word of God. This is God saying this, right? Who are we? The question, God. Who are we to question any religious text? Once again, let me emphasize. I believe in God. I consider myself a, a Christian of sorts. But also, I'm a God. You know, I'm a dude with a lot of questions. They need answers. And I think sometimes in, in these religions, you're almost demonized for having questions. And you're demonized for wanting to scrutinize certain things that you see around you, whether it be uh, tithing, whether it be the sexual autonomy of women. You know, you're, you're off, often made to feel like you shouldn't have a question and you shouldn't have a particular voice. Uh, so I talked about the religious aspect and I want to hop on one historical thing. So uh, when you study when Columbus came to the new world, uh, one of the people that came with him, I, I believe as a gentleman, he was, I don't call him a gentleman because, because of this guy, he was really one of the people that advocated for Africans to be used as slave labor um, by the Spaniards here in the Western Hemisphere. But this guy by the name of Bartholome de las Casas. And Bartholome de las Casas, he pointed out like a great thing. When he came to the New World and they were in uh, what would become Hispaniola, Hispaniola, excuse me, which is now the modern day island which both the Dominican Republic and Haiti or Haiti occupies. And he said, a few things about them, but he said, amongst the Arawak, marriage laws are non-existent. Men and women alike choose their mates and have them as they please. 
I want you to sit on that point. Okay. I'm going to jump back on the other side of the Atlantic. So if I'm moving around, pardon me, this is all building up towards a point. I want to hop back on the other side of the Atlantic. So around the year, between the years of about 1350 to about 1352. West Africa, the Malian Empire, historian D.T. Nyani says that at the empire's height, it had a population of 50 million people. The borders that expanded from uh, uh, the, the, the Benway Valley all the way to the, the uh, west coast of, of Senegal. And Gambia, the Mali Empire, wealthy empire, estimated that during Mansa Musa's time, the net worth of that particular empire would have been about something like $400 trillion. You can look it up. It was done by Forbes magazine. I want to mention a traveler by the name of Ibn Battuta. In his travels, and he actually wasn't literate. He, uh, when he was 66, he dictated his experiences to a person that wrote them down for him. Traveled in the Asia, Persia, much of the Middle East, into the last foothold of uh, of Islam in Spain as well. He was from Morocco. And in 1350, one of the years, either 1350, 51 or 52, he ended up traveling to the Mali Empire. Um, the king or the Mansa at the time, if you will, was Mansa Suleiman. And we get a lot of detail about the Mali Empire from Ibn Battuta. Uh, we understand that the, the, the borders are governed by uh, are ruled by governors called Farabas. And these Fardabas, uh collect taxes, um, work at the behest of the Mansa or the king. But one thing is really interesting. He gets to this town called Walata. And in Walata, he praises the piety of the people. He praises them being able to uh, uh, fastidiously make all five prayers on a daily basis. He praises the education, the emphasis on studying the Quran, the beauty in which the people learn the tongue of Arabic. But what he cannot do and what he doesn't understand is the autonomy of women. He states that he walk around without shame. He states that although a woman may proclaim to be a Muslim, she'll walk around with her breast out. This took the validity away from the way they practice Islam because it didn't fit into the narrative of how the Arab world or the Persian world at the time was practicing Islam. And they weren't bashful about sex. I believe in one of his uh, experiences, he actually walked in after a teacher was finished, finished uh, having sex with uh, I guess maybe one of his wives and he was just appalled and the, the people laughed at him. So 
I did this. You're like, Hoyt, you took us to the Bible, the Old Testament. You took us to the hour walk. You took us to all of these places and you're rambling. So what is your point? What are you trying to get at? I'm trying to get at the fact that right now we're in a society with amnesia. We don't look at things as development and continuums. We look at things as being innate. And I brought those different examples to the table to show you that there were worlds that existed before our current paradigm. There are ways in which men and women interfaced that were probably far more affable than the way that we interface now. And a lot of those cultures I mentioned where nudity may have been more acceptable, where they may have been more a little bit more, quote unquote, promiscuous than or excuse me at least more promiscuous and less judged in our society. Now you didn't hear about rapes. So I, I, I want us to think about how we view women and sexuality. I want us to think about monogamy. I'm not saying monogamy is wrong, but when we examine our human nature and we examine what it is we we are kind of programmed to do, how does that mix with our cultural modus operandi? That's something that we have to consider and that's something that we have to delve into more deeply. So... I look at it as well from a biological perspective. I'm not trying to be nasty or graphic, but a woman, and this is bear with me, folks, a woman, a woman's clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings. Also internally, uh, women possess um, what's called, better called, or known as the G-spot. Men, I believe we have about 4,000 nerve endings in the tip of our penis. And unlike other mammals, or other species rather, most, pe- most species can only mate or have sex when a woman's, the, the female is in heat, or is a specific time when they're able to, to copulate. Whereas with human beings, even if a woman is not ovulating, that still doesn't stop the act of sex. Um, as my friend says, we can practice the art of procreation as much as we want. And it strikes me as a way that maybe we're not necessarily meant to be monogamous and we may not necessarily be meant to be promiscuous. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Maybe that's kind of how we have to look at it going forward. But I think what's not healthy is this caustic way of viewing women's sexuality. Because I mentioned all of this because what we suffer from is the junk and the muck of historical dogma. And not understanding the proper context of that dogma. Because in a different society, it may behoove you to live this way or to live that way. 
in which you restrict certain things. Possibly, I'm not sure. But when a woman can wear a short dress and a man says, well, she deserves it if she gets raped. It's a problem there. It's something wrong with that. And we have to, we have to really, we have to really allow ourselves to step out of our comfort zones and to have discourse and to question the reason why we think the way that we think about many things. And more specifically, if you have a daughter, do you want your daughter to be restricted? Do you want your daughter to be, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 I don't even say a victim, but have to deal with misogyny and rude comments? And I truly believe if we were to move past a lot of these chains that kind of hold us down or a lot of women down sexually in certain respects. Now, everything is done within context. If we were able to move past that, I believe that rapes will go down. I also believe that you would see a decrease in more nefarious sexual behaviors as well because we'd be in a more open society. And that's not without limits. Um, now, granted, I do think that children, young people, young women should be of a mature age before they engage in, in sex because it's a spiritual act and there's an exchange of energies. And I think you should be mature enough to handle that and to be able to function within that particular spiritual realm. And that's a different topic. So, I, you know, I want to close this off with saying, let's stop calling women hoes. Should you be out here sleeping with any and everyone you, you, you meet? No. Discipline and self-control is important. Secondly, if you're going to call a woman a hoe, apply the same rules, logic, reg logic, regulation and restrictions to yourself as well. And how do you fall under that particular lens or that particular microscope? And thirdly, I want to leave you with this. You are in a world that has developed over time. That's a product of 1492. That's a product of the Crusades. That's a product of the transatlantic slave trade. That's a product of agriculture. And nothing is innate. And I, I think that as long as we believe that these behaviors are innate to us, and not realize that other cultures had other ways of doing things and other people throughout history had other tactics and modes and means of doing things. As long as we keep that mentality, we never can reach a resolution because you have to see the development because once you see the development of something, that's how you can properly address it. Look, once again, thank you for tuning in for episode four of No Truths Barred. This is your man, Hoikawake Timmons. I deeply thank you for uh, tuning in once again, and you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Hoyt, H-O-Y-T underscore K-W-A-K-U underscore Timmons, T-I-M-M-O-N-S. Uh, also, make sure you follow the SoundCloud, and make sure you follow me on Spotify as well. Peace, and I'll be back at you again next week with episode five 
Much love, much props, much respect. One love.